No wonder God says the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to him. When you endorse what is wicked, God calls you a wicked person. And he in turn calls your prayers wicked. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl is currently in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's join Pastor Carl as he reminds us that favoritism and faith are not compatible with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. So to speak against sin is not unloving. It's actually the most loving thing you can do to tell people the truth. A dad called me a few weeks ago or emailed me through the website, and he said, Pastor Carl, I have a son who is living with his girlfriend. I didn't raise him that way, and he no longer believes the Bible. Well, that's what people do. When they don't like the Bible, they just say it's not true, or they say it's partially true, and then you pick the parts you like, and you discard the parts you don't. So I reminded the dad, I said, ultimately, it's an issue of authority. I sent him my little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. But sometimes we have to preach as pastors against things that God calls sinful. And when you do that, you're not discriminating against people. You're discriminating against people if you preach about sin, and in the process, you despise those people. I've only had the chance to witness to one transgender person, and my heart was filled with a sense of compassion. What brought this man who says he's now a woman to the point that he is at? And so Jesus loved sinners. He cared about sinful people. And he didn't brush over this woman's adultery. Even his enemies said this, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Don't miss that. That was a statement from his enemies that they had observed that Jesus cared about people's souls. He was never a snob. He never walked around with his nose in the air, though he could have because he was God in human flesh. He was kind to the Samaritan woman just like he was to the religious man Nicodemus. He was available to blind Bartimaeus Bartimaeus, as much as he was to the rich young ruler. He cared for the outcasts and the untouchables as he did for the scribes and the Pharisees. So James' premise here in chapter 2 is very simple, namely that favoritism and faith is not compatible with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice verse 1. It's actually a command. It's an imperative construction in the Greek New Testament so that you could translate it really in one of two ways. You could either translate it, stop being partial, or you could render it, do not ever get in the habit of being partial. In other words, if you're showing favoritism, cut it out. And if you're not, then don't ever get caught up in it. Now, that's the problem of partiality, the principle of partiality stated. Secondly, I want us to look at the principle of partiality illustrated. The principle of partiality illustrated. Notice the questions that James asked beginning now in verse 2. 
For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And his answer is, yes, you have. So to help us to see whether or not we are clinged and unstained by the world's values, he gives us a simple little test. Two visitors enter into the assembly, one a rich man, the other a poor man, and he wants to see how we respond to each. Again in verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Now to appreciate why James uses this particular illustration, remember the key was in the front door in the first verse. He is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. This is one of the earliest New Testament books as we covered in our introduction. And remember, the early church at first was all Jewish. In fact, the word here for assembly is not the typical word, ecclesia, that refers to an assembly or a group of people, often translated church. But he uses the word synagogue that gives them their word synagogue. And so the early church was exclusively Jewish. Remember, the first Gentiles don't come to faith until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And as the church grew, hatred towards fellow Jews who converted to Christianity also grew. And suddenly, some who were well off instantly became poor. Why? Because they were disowned by their families their businesses were boycotted, they were ostracized, they lost their jobs. Now, don't miss the picture here. A congregation of Christians who, for the most part, are not all that well off when suddenly two men enter into the assembly. Both appear to come late to an assembly that is near full. One arrives late, probably to be seen by men. The other arrives late, no doubt, not to be seen by men. He just wants to slip in unobtrusively to come and worship the living God. Now take note how each is dressed. One man comes in with a gold ring. Actually, the Greek New Testament, you could render it a gold-fingered man or a gold-ring-adorned man. The CJB translation, that doesn't stand for Carl J. Brogy, but the uh, complete Jewish Bible translation renders it, suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing gold rings and fancy clothes. You have a grammatically singular noun or adjective in Greek that can represent a group of things. Like in English, our word deer can refer to a single deer or to a herd of deer. And so it is very possible in light of the Jewish culture and the way the rich wore their rings that the CJB has it right. He comes in as a gold-fingered man, that he's not wearing a single ring, but he has rings on all of his fingers. In fact, according to the social status of the day, as some historians whose writings have come down to us, that was one way in which you showed off your wealth. It was a sign of wealth. In fact, in the first century, if you wanted to be a big shot, you could go to a place like we might rent a tuxedo. 
You could go and you could rent rings to wear on your finger. And so it was a symbol that you were powerful and rich and wealthy. In addition to the ring or rings that he wears, however you take it, it says that he was dressed in fine clothes. And the word here that modifies clothes is the word lampos. It means shining. We get our word lamp from it. He comes in with shining clothes. And again, that was the way in which you showed your wealth. You would have a robe that very often had literal silver woven through it, and it would shine and it would glisten. So here comes this fellow. He has his... In modern-day terms, a Rolex watch around his wrist. He has a Hickey Freeman suit on. And there also comes in, notice, a poor man in dirty clothes. He's called a poor man. And the word that God uses here for poor is used in reference elsewhere to someone who's in abject poverty, someone who might be considered a beggar or in 21st century terminology, a homeless person. And he comes in in dirty clothes, or you could translate it uh, shabby as in the ESV or vile in the King James. It literally means a badly stained garment. It's not that he hasn't had a bath and that his clothes haven't been washed, but because he is poor, he doesn't own a variety of clothes. He owns, no doubt, a single piece of clothing that he would use not only to go to work, but he would use it also to come and worship in. And so it was badly stained. So unlike the rich man, the poor man, he has no real connections, he has no money, he has no status. He has nothing really to benefit this first century assembly. That's the setting. James is painting for us two polar opposites, a poor man with no money and a rich man with money to burn. And so he says here in verse 3, his point is to help us to see whether or not, again, God's Word is really taking root in our life. How are we going to respond? He says, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. This uh, partial or snooty usher, as we might call him, took one look at the rich man and he wanted to give him the best seat. Oh, brother Goldfinger. Welcome to our assembly. We are so pleased that you've come here today. Come right down front. We have a special seat just for you. In exposing Pharisaism, Jesus said in Matthew 23, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. The chief seats were the seats down in front, usually off to the side and often turned around, facing the audience so that everyone could see this prominent individual. And so this usher says, we're delighted to have you here today, basically meaning I can't hardly wait to pass the offering plate to see what he's going to give. But this snooty usher no sooner seats the rich man, the poor man comes in, He doesn't have the latest suit, the latest fashion. And in this usher's mind, he probably doesn't have a plumb nickel to give to God. So he says, you stand over here. And if that's not good enough, sit down by my footstool. Sit on the floor. Now, notice carefully verse 3. 
He does not say, sit down at a footstool, circle the little word my, sit down at my footstool. What does that tell me? It tells me, according to the first century Jewish assembly, based on Luke 4.24, that this man is the attendant. That is, he has not only a seat, but he has a footstool. And so this usher or this attendant could have offered this man his footstool, but he says, sit down by it, that is, sit on the floor. I mean, you talk about a prejudicial response to this guy who comes in with nothing. So the church is not that far along before there is already developing first-class seating and stage or coach seating. Good seats and not-so-good seats. And this guy comes in, everybody stops breathing, and they stare. They give special attention. It's a verb that literally means to stare, to gaze at, to gawk, to look with admiration. Now, notice the question he asks in verse 4. Don't miss it. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And his answer to this rhetorical question is, yes, you have. Now, please do not miss why he treated this man this way. James is telling us that his actions are driven by evil motives. Now, he's not dealing directly here with racism. He's dealing with just general partiality or favoritism. Though obviously, racism could express itself, but racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. It's looking at people from the outside rather than the way God sees them. And so here amongst these Christians, they're treating the rich man different from the poor man. And this is not just some breach of hospitality in the mind of God. This is, and I have it circled, evil. I've pastored this church long enough to know that there are people who have joined, and when oftentimes we meet and we find out their history, I find out their experiences in visiting other places. And we have a very diverse community of saints. We have German people, we have Chinese people, we have Japanese, we have Filipinos, we have black, we have white, we have rich, we have Hispanic, we have poor, we have educated, we have uneducated. And uh, some have said, well, I went to that church and I really wasn't welcomed in that church. Now, granted, many of those churches that they came from were what I would call pseudo churches, fake churches. How do I know? Because I know the pastors. Pastors who don't sometimes have the gospel, sometimes pastors who discount the gospel. We have two Baptist churches in our town that are cooperative Baptists, and that's a denomination that denies the inerrancy of Scripture. We have two Presbyterian churches in our town that do gay marriages. Look, there are lost people, even in the pulpit. But then there are Christians who are pastoring, and their churches are not really open. Why? Because they have a target community. They have a certain group that they want to reach. And I've spoken to some of these men over the years. They said, well, you know, we, we don't really make distinctions. I'll ask them, then why is your church so homogeneous? In a community that is multiracial, that has rich and poor and educated and uneducated, 
This whole thing that Rick Warren postulated on the church 30 years ago of having a target audience is antithetical to the teaching of the New Testament. But you have Christian people who say, well, you know, I'm not partial to people. I like black people. I like Chinese people. I like white people. I like educated people. I like uneducated people. I'm not, I'm not partial. I like white collar. I like professional. I like blue collar. But all the time, they are discriminatory because they could not have fellowship with someone maybe not with the same educational level. Or they might like look down on a skilled tradesman, and the skilled tradesman might look down on the highly educational professional because he doesn't have a skill. And so discrimination can be very, very subtle. And we can put on the outside of the church, visitors welcome, but they're not really welcomed. I've been into some churches that were so cold you could skate down the center aisle. You know, yeah, hey, you're a friendly church. Oh, yeah, we're a friendly church. Aren't we friendly, Bill? Bill, aren't we friendly? Yeah, you and I have been knowing each other for 30 years. We're a friendly church. But someone else comes in that's different. You discover they're really not that friendly at all. When I meet these young pastors and they tell me, well, my target audience is Generation Z and Generation X, I remind them, a time is coming when you're going to be an old person and you're going to think very, very different. God calls us to discriminate, all right, between truth and error, between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. So we need to ask an important question here. Is the Apostle James addressing believers or unbelievers? He's addressing Christians. He addresses them in verse 1 as, My brethren. That's important. Born-again Christians who have been saved but haven't grown. Listen, you're saved by grace, but then God calls you to grow in grace. The moment you're converted, if you carry all this baggage of partiality based on your background, it doesn't dissolve in a day. But as you begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, everything begins to change. So that if the visitor is a Christian, you can receive him because he's my brother or sister in Christ. And if the person is a non-Christian, you say, I can receive him because Christ Jesus died for him just as he died for me. But discrimination basically says, I am better than you or you're not as good as I am. Now understand the partiality in the New Testament is a double-edged sword like a lot of New Testament doctrines. Take forgiveness. On the one hand, Jesus taught an unforgiving person is lost. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that a true saved person can withhold forgiveness. And so we're commanded, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus forgave us. On the other hand, God teaches that people who constantly show partiality are lost. Everyone, John says, who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And yet James is crystal clear in this text that a believer can also show partiality. So the test of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on a vertical level, is the way we treat people on a horizontal level. 
personal favoritism or discrimination is totally incompatible with our confession of faith. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, there are some churches you'd never be welcomed in. Even if Jesus came, he wouldn't be welcomed in them. Jesus came today and he was preaching against transgenderism and homosexuality and all the sins that are covering over this culture. He wouldn't be welcomed, not even close. We're living in precarious days. There are people in our government who want to make the kind of speech that I'm saying, calling the LGBTQ lifestyle an abomination hate speech. Watch out. Some foolish Christians listen to the Phil Fishes and the John Pipers who said, oh, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's okay to vote for a Dem. We're headed for some serious days in front of us. So there's the principle of partiality stated. There's the principle of partiality illustrated now in verses 5 through 11. The principle of partiality explained. I want you to see how he explains it, why partiality is wrong. He gives two reasons. The first reason is found here in verses 5 through 7. He begins by showing us that partiality misrepresents God's methodology. Let me read those verses, then we'll go back and look at them in depth. Look at the rhetorical questions he asks, three in number. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Yes, he did. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich man who oppress, is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Is it not they that do that? Yes, it is. Do they not blaspheme the fair name of God by which you have been called? Yes, they do. Now back here in verse 5, when God says that he chose the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom, the kingdom here, of course, is representing our salvation, not just in this life, but also in the next life to come. So we need to ask a question. Is God partial to the poor? Does God show favoritism? To the poor over the rich? Clearly he's not saying that. For if God were saying that, then he would be guilty of the very sin that he is inspiring the pen of the Apostle James to un underscore. No, economic status has absolutely nothing to do with God's choice. Understand, God never chooses a person on the basis of who that person is. God always chooses a person on the basis of what that person can become. Now, think your way through this. God does not choose a pers poor person because he's poor. He chooses him because, according to James, notice he's rich in faith. And God does not reject a rich man because he's rich. He rejects him because he's poor in faith. You know it, that many of God's choicest servants in Scripture were very rich. Men like Abraham, King David, Joseph, and Job, to name just a few. And then there are examples who are sprinkled through the New Testament church. Think about Joseph of Arimathea. Think about Nicodemus, who's converted. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a very wealthy class. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch who served the queen of Ethiopia. 
He owned his own scroll. That's expensive. You are wealthy if you can do that. Think about Cornelius in Acts 10 or Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in Acts 13, or Lydia, the one who had a business in dyeing purple cloth in Acts 16. But with that said, just know that rich people have always been a minority in the body of Christ, wherever you go in the world. Right out in your margin next to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Let me read it to you. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not wise so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Lady Huntington, a very rich and wealthy woman of English nobility, had John and Charles Wesley as her close friends. And this highly cultured woman read 1 Corinthians 1, and she said, I was saved by the letter M. God did not say any, but not many. He didn't say not any wise, any noble, not many. You see, God chooses the poor man because he tends to be rich in faith, and he tends to reject the rich man because he tends to be poor in faith. Now understand, God chooses in the fashion that he does because as we're instructed by Samuel, for God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God chooses the poor because they're rich in faith. But understand that problem, the, uh, riches are never a problem for God. They are only a problem for man. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 10? Let me read it to you. He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the parable of the sower, he tells us why it is so difficult. Listen to these words from Mark 4, 18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who've heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the world word and it becomes unfruitful. God's word doesn't always find its place in the heart of a rich, wealthy man. Why? Because he's consumed with his wealth, and so he's driven by worry, uh, sometimes a lust for more. Sometimes he finds a false security in what he owns rather than in a relationship with the living God. And so very often, sadly, the rich man tends to put his trust in what he has, and since the poor man doesn't have any of those things, many times he has no other place to turn but to the Lord. So it is hard for the rich man who has everything in the sight of man to enter the kingdom of God because very often his priorities are out of whack. Do you remember that encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler? It's good to read all the accounts. A man whom Jesus said he loved. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, your definition of goodness 
depends often on your view of God. We tend to measure goodness in relationship to one another. God never chooses a person on the basis of who that person is. God always chooses a person on the basis of what that person can become. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 005. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl concludes his message in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. Join us then as we search the scriptures.